Welcome to Quiver Financial. In this episode, we wanted to discuss the next investment wave. A few months back, we were very bullish on oil and gas. And so far, our thesis has held up pretty well. But more recently, some of our experts sat down to talk about the intricacies to the current market conditions as well as where the future holds for the oil and gas market. They talk about some of the geopolitical risk and mainly stress the supply and demand dynamics that's happening and going to happen for the near future. They talk about some of the ESG and how that's probably not going to be taking over or replacing how much oil and gas we use in the near term or for many years to come. Take a listen. Thanks, Michael. Uh, so this is Matthew Ike, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, and Dan, I'm going to try to do my best to let you uh, be the primary presenter here. I'll pop on and off and ask you some questions. And uh, as you know, I always make comments, but I feel like you have so much to add right now, uh, especially with everything that's going in the market, that I'm just going to let you roll with it. Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks for having me on again. And I think a very timely uh, discussion today, uh, since we've gone through uh, quite a little uh, period here of volatility in the oil market, and we'll try to explain what caused that and then go from there. But let me just, because uh, we had some topics we wanted to cover. So I'd like to give you my quick takes on each one of those first. And then uh, the rest of the presentation, I'll try to prove this stuff up. But uh, where are we today in the uh, terms of peak oil and oil price cycle? I would say the thing to remember is the cheap oil. Let's say the conventional oil where we just drilled, you know, uh, vertical wells and completed them the old-fashioned way. Uh, that's all pretty much been harvested. Uh, harvested. The conventional oil production in the U.S. is on steady decline, and it's all been uh, the our ability to drill horizontal wells in the shale uh, zones, which is the source rock for a lot of the oil reservoirs above it, uh, and then hydraulic fracturing uh, has done, but it's has created this boom in uh, U.S. oil production over the last few years. It's kind of plateaued now. But anyway, the fear of recession is the number one thing that's holding down oil price. You're going to see it on several slides today. And then the other two things are what's going to happen with Russian supply and what's going to happen with Japanese demand. Are they are they truly done with the COVID zero policies and is their economy opening up? And if so, uh, Chinese demand for oil-based products are going to go sky high. But anyway, so where is oil price heading? Uh, the, the quick answer is up. Uh, once we get past this noise of fear of recession and fear of the Fed, I think uh, oil demand is relentless and it's going to take it up. The other two bullet points are go go to the next slide and those other yep. two really are misplaced there. Okay, but anyway, what's the what impact will the Green New Deal have on the overall energy mix and specifically demand for oil and gas? Well, wind and solar will have some impact on natural gas demand because wind and solar produce electricity, and we do not burn oil to make electricity. Uh, you know, maybe if you have a little generator by the side of the house, you do, but but not significant amounts. So it will you know, lower demand, but still natural gas demand for electricity generation is continuing to go up. And now uh, electric vehicles will have some impact on oil, but I don't think they're going to make the dent in the overall demand for oil that people think that they're going to do. Uh, so then where are current opportunities for investors in energy? Uh, obviously, the number one is still the Permian Basin. It's the only basin in the U.S. where there's still significant upside 
and then uh, the Eagleford, DJ Basin, and then Central Oklahoma. Uh, you may have heard of the scoop and stack play. I think there's some uh, upside there. Uh, not really upside for the whole basins, but there is, uh, you know, areas where individual drilling programs will still have some upside. Then natural gas, I think the Haynesville is number one. Uh, anyway, you want to talk to this, Matt? Yeah, so I just thought it was kind of an interesting point right now because I, I think a lot of people have recognized over the last year that we get this all the time as a question, uh, which is why are natural gas and oil acting so differently? We've we've had this conversation over the years and that you know natural gas still ultimately for a couple of years still has a larger influence on what's happening domestically. Uh, last year internationally, you saw people realize how much LNG the U.S. was producing and shipping and uh, you'll talk about these stats as to where it's going, but until we get to that 35 to 40 percent, the U.S. is still largely going to be dominated these extremes by inventory and what the storage is in here in the U.S. And as long as that's capped at five trillion cubic feet, uh, you're going to see these swings that can go from two to nine dollars plus. Uh, yep. I mean, we could have we could have saw 17 last year if we had had a cold winter and if Europe had gone the wrong way. So. Uh, unfortunately, the U.S. won't have the same global pricing scale. Uh, kind of like you mentioned, natural gas will still see some downward pressure from electricity uh, uh, switches over to, to some alternatives. So you're going to see more volatility. I don't think it's going to stop the long-term trend, right? So all the short-term noise that you hear, the long-term trend of having natural gas trade higher and higher from $2 to $4 to $6 in MCF as a trend line is going to continue. Uh, but it's going to have a lot of choppiness around it as long as we have a storage and a capacity problem where we don't store a whole lot and 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 thus uh, things can either get overfull or empty real quick. So yeah. I, I do want to mention that obviously oil prices are much more globally priced uh, and we're going to talk so much about that that I'm not even going to mention it right now. But I just thought okay. that yeah, the, the, ga the gas uh, price is really because of the problem in the futures market got out of balance. I'll talk about that. I have some slides at the end. Yeah, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, what hasn't changed is this. We're in the early phases of being significantly and globally undersupplied, especially on the oil side. Uh, and so you're in this super cycle where you're going to see the trend line for oil prices. Although you'll see traders and, and short term fundamentals uh, uh, change uh, pricing from 70 to 60 to 50 to 110. The long term trend line is still going from 80 to 90 to 100 to 110 because ultimately we can't produce enough. You're going to see a lot of data behind this to meet the global demands. Uh, even if we get to a global recession and a big one, that might have a seven to 12 month impact, but it doesn't stop the trend lines from moving. So right. just a macro uh, kind of statement that was is relevant for where we are. Um, and I'll go back to you, Dan. Okay, but the long-term trend is demand for energy. Now, to I'm talking total energy. All forms of energy are directly related to human population growth. Uh, humans are the users of this this stuff, and uh, as our population grows and it growth grows relentlessly, uh, all forms of energy are needed. And you know, when you hear politicians say we can get rid of 50 to 100 percent of fossil fuels. Those are ridiculous statements. I mean, there's absolutely no way you can get rid of hydrocarbons and still meet the, the world's energy demand, and especially outside the United States, where these countries cannot afford to throw trillions of dollars at wind and solar projects. But even when you look out, you know, to 2040, I mean, this slide says hydrocarbons will still be 70 to 75 percent, and that's based on BP's 
statistical review, and I will tell you that BP is very much uh, their annual their annual report they put out on energy demand is very much uh, geared to support the green energy movement. But I, I would say that EIA that EIA is our energy department, the U.S. Energy Department. Their forecast is that that uh, fossil fuels will still be 80 percent of total global energy by 2050. So and and I'll tell you that in a lot of times when they talk about renewals, renewables, they're not talking about just wind and solar. They put in uh, hydro and biofuels and stuff like that. So make yeah. sure you're looking at the right percentages. But uh, wind and solar at well, I don't think in my lifetime they'll ever get to 10% of the total energy mix. And there's a there's a big argument that we'll talk about at the end here, where there's still a lot to be seen as to whether wind and solar with all of the energy output to generate it is mm -hmm. ever going to get to a point where you're actually providing more energy to the system than you're pulling, right? And, and we're not there yet, and I'm not sure we're going to get there by 2050. No, and the materials to make them are just getting more and more expensive. There isn't enough of it. We'll talk about that later. Um, okay, I'm 69 years old, just turned 69, born in 1954. And in my lifetime, the world's population has tripled. Uh, it went from about two and a half billion people to now we're at eight billion people. And uh, actually the, the pace, the rate of increase has actually slowed. Uh, just about three years ago, it was 220,000. And that really wasn't because COVID, it's really just because you have more baby boomers dying off. Uh, so death rates increased a little bit as the baby boomer population dies off. But even if you assume that, you know, the rate will slow to 150,000 per day, that's per day, uh, we're gonna be crossing uh, 10, you know, 9 billion people by uh, the end of, uh, you know, 2030, and probably by 2040, we'll be about uh, 10 billion people. So just remember that as population grows, overall energy demand just keeps going up, up, up. Yep. Uh, okay, right now, uh, demand for oil-based products is seasonal, and um, we are in the low point uh, the first quarter of the year because 90% of humans live in the northern hemisphere. We do less traveling during the winter months, and therefore, it's the lowest demand quarter of the year. Well, just ahead, in about two more months, uh, we're going to be at the highest demand period this summer when school gets out, more people go on vacation, there's more traveling in the in the summer months and demand will be pushing up against supply. And obviously, uh, consumption of oil-based products cannot exceed supply for long because the above ground inventories are already below normal and uh, we would deplete them. You can't keep draining the strategic petroleum reserve forever. So OECD inventories, OECD is the Organi Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, their inventories on days of consumption, I'll show you another slide later on this, is down almost below where it's ever been. Uh, it's come up a little, improved a little bit in the first quarter just because supply exceeds demand, but in the second quarter, it's gonna start on uh, decline again and we're headed for territory we've never been to and and that relationship definitely points to a hundred dollar oil yeah and so dan i want to put that in context because it's super interesting that's the exact exact opposite of what kind of we're describing in natural gas domestically right you have this five tcs of gas storage that's, that's mm -hmm. uh, when it's higher you get lower prices right it's uh -huh. not high enough that we should have two dollar gas that's as you no, mentioned no, no. really caused by traders but 
at the end of the day, it still would put downward pressure. The same upward pressure inversely is happening in petroleum where inventories are way too low. And, way and as you get into those stronger months where consumption goes up and supply is less than consumption and you have no uh, inventory, no storage, I describe it as the difference of sitting, like falling onto a park bench. You know, it's it's not so bad if there's a big cushion there. It's mm-hmm. really painful if there's no cushion. And we have zero cushion. You're, far, you're falling onto hard concrete. Uh, yeah. and, and that gets a little scary. That's why you see these big price swings that, you know, you say globally what changed overnight, not that much, except people realize there's no storage. Right. Uh, and, and now, and now we've, we've drained the strategic petroleum reserve. It, I mean, it's, it's dangerously an, low now. Yeah, I can't even I can't even describe, you know, of course, this administration is not going to refill it. Right. I think that's I know, pretty clear. There was a question that would get us into a really negative situation. Imagine going from adding millions of barrels of oil to the market. To all of a sudden, not just no longer adding them, but subtracting them by filling it back up. I know <laughs> it would be it would be just devastating to inflation. It would be devastating to, to to everything. So I, I thought this slide was really interesting. I want to show everyone this, uh, not necessarily from the left side, because we talked a lot about it in terms of people's consumption of which commodity. What's really kind of scary is that as we get to 10, 10 and a half billion people, which is where people think the earth can handle and then as mm-hmm. industrialized world, you'll start you'll start getting closer to one to one ratio, right? You won't get a a one point six ratio. You won't keep growing the population. It'll go from slowing to to really flatlining. That's the thesis, anyways. the The problem is that growth tends to occur in the undeveloped nations, and everyone in the world wants to live like the developed nations. If Africa or Asia got to ten percent of the consumption of the US, Europe, the industrialized parts of Asia, it would be beyond comprehension how much energy we consume. The hydrocarbons couldn't solve it. Renewables couldn't solve it. You'd have a fight for supply, which would go back to increasing prices exponentially, right? Mm -hmm. So ultimately it gets scary that if the rest of the world that's growing in population grows in its energy consumption, it, it gets really scary from a mathematical standpoint of where we actually get it from. And ultimately, what you've seen is that all this short-term noise around price and volatility, the consensus really hasn't changed, right? So the consensus of 79 for Q1, we've we've had 76, even with the banking pressure, the recession pressure, you name it. Uh, and for the rest of the year, you're probably going to see a very similar trend line. Now, if you get, you know, the economy doesn't go into recession, the banking crisis clears up, you name it, you might get uh, above these lines, or you might get slightly below them. But ultimately, as this line goes out, just not just this year. But probably next year and the following year, you're going to see that 80 go to 90, that 90 to 100, that 100 to 105. It's really the trend that we're in in this super cycle, regardless of any short term noise. That's correct. Uh, I just put this in there because I I think it's good to look back at history. How did we get to this point? But everybody knows that the pandemic caused a huge drop, a historical drop in the price of oil actually in the futures market went negative for a while. And it's because, I mean, we just slammed on the brakes of demand for transportation fuels, which is, you know, a third or or even 40% of demand for oil-based products. But even pre-pandemic, before anybody heard of COVID in the U.S., the price of oil was around $65. Back then, the main topic was, you know, the Trump-China trade war and 
you know, that's all a distant memory right now. But then once we got past, in the real world, in the physical world, oil dropped from 65 to 12, but it didn't stay there very long. It, it That was just an unsustainable price. You would literally just shut down all expiration and all development. They just quit completing wells. And so you bounce back pretty quick. So we bounced back quickly to $40 a barrel there by the end of, uh, uh, actually by July, by mid 2020, we were already back to 40, climbed up to 50 by the end of 2020. And then it went from 50 to, uh, to 70 by the end of 2021. So then, okay, before Russia invaded Ukraine uh, and, and we were, by then we were kind of past COVID. We'd had a couple variants, you know, of COVID. Those dips in, in 2021 were all because of, uh, what was it, the Omicron or whatever, different variants of variances of COVID. We got past that, that fear was uh, subsiding and we looked up and saw that, hey, our oil inventories and our product inventories are way too low and the price was headed for 100. Then that big spike that came at the end of February, that's when Russia invaded Ukraine. Everybody was worried, where's it going to go? Oil went to 120, flopped around in there for a while. And then uh, not as much uh, Russian oil came off the market as people thought was going to happen. And uh, it kind of went back to 100. But then from 100 there on, so in from mid-2022 to today, all of that is basically fear of recession. Uh, the Fed started raising interest rates to uh, curb inflation. Uh, we're draining the SPR, uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and all that. And that's what led to today. But this chart, I pulled this chart on Friday and oil closed at 69.26. Well, I'm looking at the chart right now and it's 73.26. So it's, it's gone up four bucks just since Friday. Uh, actually, what happened in the futures market, because this, this is a chart of the front month futures contract for West Texas Intermediate. WTI is the U.S. benchmarket, and it's the most highly traded commodity in the futures market. And what happened was the banks that are uh, the counterparty for the hedges, uh, they had to unwind their long positions and they there weren't enough buyers in the futures market. So that's why the futures price went down. Well, that situation in the futures market is pretty much back in balance. And then so what happened yesterday on Monday was you had uh, airlines, uh, shipping companies, users of start buying up the futures contracts to offset what they perceived would be increases in jet fuel prices, increases in diesel, gasoline. Uh, they see the same thing that we see, that the, the inventories of transportation fuels are way below normal where they should be this time of the year. And anybody that's been in the, these industries knows that uh, we are headed for a summer where demand for transportation fuels is going to exceed supply. Uh, so I think we're past the low point for oil. Hopefully we'll get back up into the mid 70s and then push on to the 80s because that's where we, it was headed uh, before all this noise came on. So go to the so, next so, slide. We'll look. No, oh, no, I'm no, sorry, go so ahead. interesting you say that, Dan. Uh, so I was kind of describing that before. If you were to take out the white noise, the, the bottom of 220, the, oh, yeah. the top of 2022, right? And you were looking at this trend line of, of the 50s becoming the 60s, the 60s becoming 70s, 70s becoming the 80s, 80s, the 90s. The trend line is clearly up over the next 5, 10, 15 years as you keep watching 
but the white noise is so strong oh, it yeah. moves oil to 120 and down to 50 and up and down around it but if you could remove all that short-term volatility you'd see where the long-term pricing was going it'd be pretty transparent you can't see it when you're in the thick of it right because because of all the fear or all the greed or whatever it might actually be but the trend line up but as a company people might think that that the volatility is is good or bad for us we love it oh, yeah. uh, and i actually like <laughs> the lower price volatility more than the upside because it keeps people away from the space. It keeps less capital in the space. Uh, it, it makes it more competitive to get better opportunities. Uh, if oil was always above 100, it, there's just a lot of money chasing it, even with the ESG movement, right? And the environmental social governance um, and, and the strength that's behind them, it's really strong. Uh, and it's kept a lot of money out of the space. Last year, you were seeing people give up on ESG. And we don't want that. And, and the reason we don't want that is we get outsized risk-adjusted returns in volatile pricing. If oil is always above 100, even dumb money comes into the space, right? So just, just my outside view of we love volatility. It creates opportunity. Well, if you, if you look back there at, from the end of 2022 uh, through almost through the middle of March there, look at that channel. We were, we were in that $75 to $80 channel. And it was there, and I think that's where we're headed back to. We'll get we'll get back in that first, and then when we get to the summer months, when we get into like uh, May, and you see all the refineries are coming back online. Like right now, in uh, March and April, a lot of refineries do maintenance, so they're they're only running at about eighty five percent of capacity. They have to ramp up to ninety five percent of of design capacity when we get to May, because that's the only way they can keep up with demand for gasoline and diesel. So that'll happen. They're the consumers of oil, and um, you're you're going to see that line come back up there. So yep. anyway, uh, all there in the blue in the middle, you can see those were the actual prices, uh, still very high. Uh, it's a very profitable business at $80 or above, that's for sure. It's a very profitable business at $70 and above. But fear of recession is the only thing holding down. I believe the right price for oil is somewhere in the $90 to $100 range. That's where we were headed uh, before Russia invaded Ukraine. And and actually, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has made the market even tighter. Uh, so unless we have a really deep recession or a depression or something, I don't see WTI staying under 80 much longer. Yeah, and but again, I'll mention this from a from an operator standpoint. You would think that people don't love the 60s and 70s. One, it's very profitable. But two, it's actually often more profitable because the less capital that's in the space chasing drilling dollars, the cheaper it is to drill, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, and so, from the margins are better under volatility and fear than they are during the greedy times. Yeah. So, from our perspective, it's the best thing. Not only do you have less money in the space because of renewables, the green push, ESG, but you also have less money because of the volatility. And, and yeah. for us, it's just the best thing as an operator. We, we love that kind of market. Yeah, and it needed to slow down a little bit because uh, it, it slows down the inflation and oil field services too. So anyway, uh, I, I, this slide I brought, this is from our EIA, Department of Energy, and uh, <laughs> The projections on where WTI is going to settle by the end of 2024, I have never seen it that wide. So if you look at that, the very last uh, end of that chart, they're saying WTI could end up anywhere between $30 and $160. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's amazing. So how do you, 
how do you forecast anything, uh, you know, based on that? Now, that middle line, uh, Steno, S-T-E-O, that's just uh, EIA's short-term energy outlook. They update it every month. And basically, their forecast is just a reflection of what the NYMEX futures prices are. And I will tell you right now, the NYMEX futures prices are not a good forecast. They are just derivatives that are based, you know, the risk adjusted based on the current price on what you could lock in today with futures contracts. So, I don't know. That's just... Uh, they're not doing much to help you if that's what they. Yeah, use. That, it, it, it's not going to help you, right? Um, yeah, don't the, don't the, use the, the, the strip futures as a market is is different in oil. It's designed yeah. to hedge out your production, right? And and ultimately, yeah. the only way you're going to get production to market and not to store it is if the current price is higher than the futures price. So the right. normal homeostasis for pricing is to have backwardization. Right, it's to have the futures contract be lower than the current price. Because if yep. it's the other way around, people just store it and sell it in the future for a higher price. Right. So right. that it very rarely gets into contango, unless prices really precipitously fall, and they're in the 40s and the 50s. You know, you normally very rarely are going to see the futures market, which is ironic, right? Because everyone would say, hey, well, with inflation, you know, oil prices are going to be higher in the future than they are today. Wouldn't two years contract be 80 if the price is 70 today? No, because then no one would sell it. They'd store it all and sell it. Yeah, they'd put it in storage. And then <laughs> and prices would be higher. Up. So yeah. the, the futures market is not a predictive index. It, it's the exact opposite. It's an insurance contract for producers to lock in their prices when they're borrowing money from creditors. Yeah. Right? That's really all it is. I go yeah. borrow money from a bank, and since I owe them back, the bank wants me to hedge that production at a price to guarantee the repayment. Yeah. It's always going to be lower under a normal market condition. Yeah. Well, that the it's the exact opposite for natural gas futures, which we'll talk about in a few slides. <laughs> uh, but I would just want to tell you, I I watch what the Wall Street gang's saying, Goldman Sachs and all these guys and their reports. I get a lot of detail from Raymond James, uh, RBC Capital, and Wells Fargo and these guys, and everyone sees that. Uh, oil demand for oil-based products is going to exceed supply within a few months. It's literally just a few months away. Uh, so, and IEA, which is the International Energy Agency based in Paris, France, uh, they always underestimate demand. Uh, their reports ha have a real bias for, uh, you know, the Paris Climate Accord because the people that sign their paychecks or want them to Say that oil demand is going to go down. Anyway, the next slide is kind of the same. Yeah. Hey, Dan, I'll, this is Mike. I got a quick question if you don't mind. Okay, go, go ahead. ahead. Um, someone asked if Russian oil um, is being restricted to China and India only as far as ability to bring to market, or is that being opened up? Well, most of it is going to India and China now, and I don't know why we just – you know, you would think we'd slap sanctions on India or something for buying their, buying their oil, but um, – uh, they're still able to sell it. It's a much, it's a big discount, uh, and some they're having trouble getting insurance on the cargos, uh, so that's a problem. Uh, yeah. But I so think uh, Russian oil is going to go down just because their economy is going down. They rely heavily on these on the money from oil sales, and that money's drying up. So uh, I think their production is just going to go down all by itself. Yeah, so uh, Russian oil production didn't go down because they were able to sell it elsewhere. It's kind of like, you know, Iran. They're just selling to the black market, which means China, right? right? So ultimately, it doesn't go away from the market. It gets sold differently. 
people thought it would be harder because the pipelines being uh, much more cost effective were going to the west, right? So they they didn't realize that you could just put it on a on a shipping cargo and illegally send it elsewhere. Well, mm-hmm. what Dan's saying is there's some confusion around that because now those cargo shipments aren't insured and you can't pass through certain ports if you're not insured. So there is a bit of a black market issue, but in essence, their supply their supply has not gone off the market, which was priced in to some of those highs last year, expecting you know a two or three million barrel a day hit that never actually occurred. Uh, but I do believe because all their money is not going back in the ground, it's going towards a war effort, you will start to see a decline in production. And what mm-hmm. really scared me is that second bullet point that you had, Dan. Yeah. I've tried to look at the math over the years. And if consumption gets to 104 million barrels a day consistently, not for a quarter, I don't yeah. know where. I don't know where it's going to come from. I don't know where it comes from. Globally, well, I'll tell you, I don't yeah. see a way. I mean, the U.S. No. would have to be at 14 million barrels a day. Right. It'd have to have an extra trillion dollars coming from every government incentive possible yep. to try to get up to even fathomably for a year or two to that level. That's a scary number if that becomes real. Yeah, yeah because that 102, like when EIA or IEA is saying 102 barrels, million barrels a day this year. Well, today we're only just over 100 million barrels a day. So that's the average for the year. So they say it's going to 104 million barrels a day by the fourth quarter. Well, the only countries that are holding back production are OPEC, the old OPEC countries, not Russia, but but OPEC. And they are publicly saying they only have 2 million barrels of spare capacity, and I don't believe that. Yeah, they say that so they, that they have control. We've seen that their actions historically don't prove that they can put 2 million barrels in anymore on the yeah. market, right? They could never hit their own quotas. It gets. Re- I personally am very concerned because nobody wants one hundred and sixty dollars oil. No, that is detrimental to the entire global economy. I, I mean, people might think it's great for us when it goes to one hundred and forty. Sure, it makes a lot of money, but nobody wants an economy in the tanks globally. Yeah. Nobody. And, and you and, t- you want to see consumers screaming if we go to if oil goes to one hundred twenty barrel. Uh, 140 here that one uh hedge fund manager is predicting 140 dollars per wti you're talking five dollar gasoline everywhere not just in california maybe seven or eight in california and five dollars everywhere else you're gonna have people screaming like crazy and this is why uh team biden has already backed off they're not going to refill the spr because they know they can't if they would start refilling the strategic petroleum reserve right now you'd see oil just skyrocket It'd yeah, but then you don't have that like lever to pull again. It, it, I hope yeah. you, I hope the world is wrong on 104. I, I hope it's 102, 103 because that starts to scare me from a price perspective. Nobody wants to see that. I, I, but again, I think people think in oil world everyone wants to see that. No, they don't. Nobody oh, yeah. wants to see that. Well, and I think we got one more. Is a chart the OECD chart? Anyway, this this is actually uh, I pulled this down on Monday morning. So oil's actually already over seventy three today. So just in one day, it's gone up like three dollars. So, uh, but just to show you, uh, you know, all the commodities are down uh, year to date here, and natural gas is taking the biggest hit. But uh, again, you know, all the noise is keeping a lid on oil prices, but the global oil market is really tight. Okay, this is maybe uh, a key slide. Uh, the relationship between OECD uh, petroleum. Now, this is all petroleum products, crude oil and refined products. 
on a days of consumption basis, anytime it's going below 30 days of supply, which is that red line in the middle. So if you look at the chart, the days of supply are on the far left of the chart you're looking at, and the oil price is on the far right. So there's an inverse relationship. So when the oil uh, inventory, above ground inventories of petroleum and crude oil, petroleum products and crude oil falls below 30 days of supply, it's like it starts putting upward pressure on the oil price. And the reason it is you have to start rationing uh, the supply by price uh, so that you price some consumers out of the market. That's what happens. So because it is seasonal, we, we've had a little uptick in uh, the inventories. Uh, you see that bar for the for the first quarter of 2023, a little uptick, and then it's going to go on steady decline and one reason why it, because it's this is based on days of consumption so consumption goes up as the weather gets warmer and the supply even if even if inventories stayed the same those bars would start going down because the denominator of demand is going up and uh, everything points to 110. I mean the Goldman Sachs uh, was projecting 110 a few months ago and this is the chart they were using for that Exactly. So just to put that in, in English for everybody, just to make, you know, the inverse relationship is sometimes hard for people to, to yeah, conceptually yeah. get. So just look at where the bar graph is in terms of below the consumption, yep. right? In essence, oil, outside of all the other noise, recessionary fears, banking fears, uh, you could even take the dollar out of the equation, the strength of the dollar. You, oil should be about 90 based on the supply, demand, and balance we have right now. Even though right, you're slightly true. filling it, it should still be around 90 going to 110 oils here, right? Mm -hmm. Assuming that we have, you know, 60% more storage than we actually have. That That's that's what the, the chart says. So when you look at the data behind the data and I'll take all the short-term stuff, the reason that you can, people feel comfortable making the predictions on price is they see that it should be 90 taking all the no other noise out. Right. And the reason that bar, when you go back there to the beginning of COVID, like the second quarter of 2020, the reason it went up there is because the denominator went down, demand went down. It wasn't the inventories went way up, the physical inventories, it's demand went through the floor, yes. dropped by like 20%. So on days of consumption, it went down. Anyway, and we had a saving grace, and people don't recognize this during that, that COVID time, Dan. Uh, and that saving was this green line. That saving right. grace was what they called ducks, drilled and incomplete wells. And what happened is, well, I'll go through some of the history in terms of pricing, but OPEC's first, OPEC Plus's internal war between supply and demand between uh, uh, um, uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia, we'll kind of forget about the past couple of years. What happened here is you had a bunch of wells that were being drilled, but as prices were going down, weren't getting complete, mm -hmm. right? And then you run into COVID, and obviously no one's going to complete their wells at low pricing. So all of a sudden, yes, rig count went down, but all these drilled and incomplete wells are sitting there waiting to get complete. And as prices started to recover, people started completing their wells and drilling new wells at the same time. But what you had is an artificially high U.S.-based production, right? The U.S. production rig count was nowhere near as high as production because you're taking all these incomplete wells and putting them online. And now, basically, every well that gets drilled gets completed. Gets completed. Yeah, we're out of duck right? well. We're out of good ducks. You're out of good ducks. The, there are some hangover of ducks that will never get complete because right. they were junky wells that everyone realized that they drilled, but they should never complete. So there'll be a couple thousand bad ducks. But in essence, 
everything that's getting drilled is getting complete. And what's scary is rig count starting to trend down again. So now you don't have new inventories coming online. Over time, these tier one plays get less efficient. It's just a fact. Dan's going to talk about it quite a bit, right? And then on top of it, you don't have any ducks to put online. So when it goes back to my comment, I don't know how the U.S. without trillions of dollars of additional capital, not billions, not hundreds of billions, a T of additional capital, get us out of a four billion, uh, 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 I'm sorry, a four million barrel a day deficit globally. I don't know where it comes from. There's just not enough money here to make it work. Yeah. I'm sorry if you hear my dogs barking in the background, but <laughs> we actually don't. So we're, we're, we're <laughs> okay. Good. good. Uh, anyway, I, you know, everybody bad mouse, you know, hydraulic fracturing and, and all that stuff. But I will tell you, if we did not have that significant advancement in technology for well completions, uh, horizontal drilling has got to go down in history as one of the best things that ever happened to humanity or we would be in bad shape because without the ability to economically harvest oil from the shales, we'd be down to like under 4,000 barrels a day. Uh, you can see on that chart, that's so conventional production was on steady decline. We got down to 4,000 barrels a day and now we're at 12,000 barrels a day. And that is all because of the shale revolution, the ability to harvest oil from the shales and uh, uh, conventional production, I think, is down to, uh, God, this guy keeps calling me. Uh, conventional production is down to about 3,000 barrels a day now. So it's all coming from the shale wells. And uh, that's just something to keep in mind. Now, I want to tell you, there's, you know, shale production cannot grow forever. And so here's a look at the Barnett shale and the Fayetteville shale. And, and a lot of you guys have been in the industry for a long time will, re will remember that, you know, horizontal drilling in, in those two uh, tight, uh, gas plays, uh, boy, that was the greatest thing, and they're just going to keep going up. Well, they rolled over because once any oil field, and this goes for the shales as well as any other oil field, once you drill out, drill out the tier one areas, the really good areas of those plays, you cannot drill enough tier two and tier three wells to offset the decline of the tier one areas. And this is actually more exaggerated in the shale plays because those wells, after they're fracked, come on very, very strong. And it's good from an economic standpoint because they pay out in six to nine months, uh, you know, and produce a lot of energy right off the start. Uh, but then we're, we're layering on more and more of these high decline shale wells. So it's going to require more and more new wells every year just to hold production flat. So if you go to the next slide, you see that uh, these are two oil plays. So you've heard of the Bakken up in North Dakota and the Eagleford in South Texas, and they've already passed peak production. They don't, well, the Bakken has been around for a long time. So so uh, it had a lot more tier one, but uh, unless there would be a significant increase in the drilling, I mean like a doubling of the active rig count in these two plays, they're not going to be able to hold production, uh, not to get back to their old peak. So, you know, they're going to, you know, slide down slowly, but uh, they're pretty much on decline. There's not as much tier one acreage, uh, especially in the Eagleford. Now, the one thing about the Eagleford is there's a lot of gas in the Eagleford that we haven't harvested yet. 
Uh, it's deeper. It's going to require a much higher gas price than we have today. But there's, we are blessed to have uh, tremendous natural gas reserves in the United States, and a lot of it's sitting in the in the deeper part of the Eagleford. Uh, so and, that and that's, I, I want to mention this. Uh, so okay. just because the areas are in decline, so right. I, I'll I'll speak annually for our company. We've been heavily in the Permian, which you're about to talk about, uh, and, and mostly because it's where you can get a bunch of tier one great stuff still. Uh, but eventually that goes away like everything. It doesn't make those formations of companies that operate in those good or bad, right? You can still have great companies if you're investing True. as a, a, a stock or through a fund or through mm -hmm. a drilling program in these areas. It's just showing more on the global scale and on the U.S. scale how less production going to market is going to, again, increase price. I don't want to make this anecdotal to make anyone think that that means some operator in the Bakken can't do a great job. They can't. There's a all lot right. of money to be made in all these formations. That, in fact, sometimes in these proven areas, they're great. So just because we don't do it or a company that we talk about doesn't do it, doesn't make them bad. It's just knowing how this affects pricing that there's less supply coming to the market in the future. Yeah. One of my top picks for this year is an Eagleford company. Yeah. Uh, but the, as far as the only basin, the uh, Permian Basin is one of the most important oil fields in the world, if you take the whole thing. It's 19 million acres. Uh, it's got two areas, the Midland uh, on the eastern side and the Delaware Basin on the western side, and then in the middle of it, the Central Basin Platform. But it's a huge area. There's, it's, there's multiple, uh, I mean, dozens, literally dozens of formations stacked on top of each other with all these stack pays. And it's still got a lot of production uh, potential. In fact, uh, I think EIA is projecting that production will grow uh, from the exit, the end of 2022 to the end of 2023, that gray area there, they expect it to increase up to like 500,000 barrels a day. So that would be the biggest growth area in the United States. And it, it still has uh, many years of potential growth uh, there, especially on the Western side, the Delaware Basin, didn't have as much infrastructure. And so that's kind of in the earlier stage than the eastern side, the middle. But ac across the whole Permian Basin, there's a lot of potential. Uh, this is just to show you that uh, U.S. oil production actually peaked in November of uh, 2019 before the pandemic. It was uh, 12.9 12 million, 12 million barrels a day. And uh, since then, uh, we got up to 12.4 in October, uh, just a few months ago, October of 2022, we got back to 12.4 and then it declined. Uh, it, it, there's a seasonal well, decline because hey, Dan, of the I, I would go back to that chart that we talked about, uh, yeah. the ducks, right? Yeah, you take right. the ducks and you throw You're that in there, there's your extra half a million barrels a day that right. wouldn't be there without all the suspended ducks. That's right, that's absolutely correct. And then uh, there is some seasonality in field work because once you get to the winter, it's more expensive and, you know, sometimes difficult with the winter weather. Uh, when when I, I used to work for Hess Corp and we were big in the Bakken and we would shut down everything. I mean, once we got to December, we would shut down air, any air all drilling and not even start again until the next uh, June or something. Uh, so anyway, uh, U.S. production actually declined in December and November by, by 300,000 barrels a day. Now, it's it's come back. It's starting to come back again. But I do not think. Uh, see, everybody thought after the pandemic that U.S. production would just snap right back. We just go out and open a bunch of valves and get there. No, no, no. That's not going to happen. 
and uh, especially because we, you know, shut down the drilling uh, so much. And there is a, there's a shortage of good drilling equipment. There's a shortage of good people. Uh, and I talk to a lot of public companies, and they are having trouble uh, finding good people, good field people. So that's going to hurt it. Uh, and now this slide just to show you on the energy transition stuff uh, in that non-carbon. Uh, remember, they're including nuclear, they're including hydro. So even today, uh, 2019, uh, wind and solar was only 3%. Maybe it's up to 4%, I think 4 or 5% today. But it's just not gone. I mean, by 2030, they're projecting now that wind and solar will be 7% of primary energy supply. And then that circle, the, the pie, is going to get a lot bigger. So... Uh, fuels are going to go. The only thing, the only hydrocarbon that's really going to go down is coal. But even that, outside of the U.S., uh, there's a lot of countries that are highly dependent Just going on to China. <laughs> yeah, going, they, they're building a new, you know, coal-fired power plant every month or so, it seems like. Yeah, I, I want to put that in the scale of money so people understand this non-carbon. The, the 3% wind and solar, banks have put as just as much capital towards renewables as, as they have oil and gas, right? They've decreased their oil and gas. Uh, the private equity world has disproportionately like seven to one put into renewables and they're at three percent. It's such a scary the, the numbers of what you can create in, in reality versus money spent. It's just not enough. It's just not anywhere close to enough to make an impact. Yeah, I, I saw a report the other day that said to reduce fossil fuel consumption by 50 percent, not 100 percent, but 50 percent. It would take $35 trillion. <laughs> yeah. Well, the OECD countries are broke. <laughs> Where the hell's $35 trillion going to come from? So, yeah, we thought we'd be super brief. We have three slides, but we're going to try to be super brief on the natural gas side. Because, again, okay. I, I think, Dan, and I just want to make one point. Yes, short-term prices are down. $9, $10 gas is an anomaly with, with Europe. It, can, it could go all the way to 17 if this war goes on and, and storage goes, yeah, it doesn't affect that long-term trend line of we of I think both of us think four-dollar gas is more reasonable going to six over a long period of time, and as you get an equivalency back to you know BTUs, British thermal units of energy consumption, a hundred-dollar oil is equal to ten-dollar natural gas, and at some point in time there becomes an, a natural ebb and flow where markets should go towards efficiency. The number one thing that's going to put pressure downwards on natural price, uh, outside of seasonality, outside of futures contracts that we were talking about, yes, the electric grid and renewables are not going to eat into oil. They will eat into natural gas, which is really kind of a shame because it's the cleanest burning fuel. Uh, but outside of that threat, it's, which isn't that significant, systemically, I think long term, you're still seeing higher and higher prices. Would you Would you agree with that, Dan? Yeah, and th this is a chart of the front month of uh, futures contract for gas. And what happened is when we had, remember the last two weeks of December were very cold and they pushed gas and storage way below the five-year average? Yep. All these hedge funds jumped in and went long on the con on the futures contracts for the first quarter yep. and, and even the second quarter. They're over they're over-invested in long contracts. So they're having to unwind those futures contract and they're selling into a market where the utility companies have pulled out of the futures market. They're not willing to take that gas in, in the uh, shoulder period here yep. in the spring. And so there's no buyer. So this is the same situation that drove uh, the oil price negative. Uh, so I think we're a couple of weeks away. In a couple of weeks, I expect the price to start coming back. And I think 
by the third quarter, it'll be back over three. Just my guess. <laughs> anyway, well, no, so uh, and the strip shows that the strip shows that because the the people that are looking at this know that uh, two dollars is an unsustainable gas price. Uh, you know, I'm looking at the future strip. It's going next year three sixty, uh, twenty twenty five, three twenty four. So our four twenty four. So it's going to come back and. Uh, and, and the reason just that's two dollars is unsustainable. As, yeah. as a producer, if you're investing in some company uh, or, or things like we do, private investments, you name it. At the end of the day, people can lock into those future prices, mm -hmm. right? And and the same way that when you're an oil company, you're forecasting locking in at lower prices, even though you know prices are going higher. The opposite is true here. You can actually lock in and assure yourself 424 for 2025, which yeah. is more than enough for great profitability in a lot of formations. So just just kind of know that when you look at it, um, you know, the world isn't what you currently see in the market. It's a lot more complex. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, the big gas producers like EQT and Antero range, uh, they're going to stop completing wells. They'll drill and case the wells and then they'll put them in duck inventory. They won't complete them uh, into this low price. They won't not bring those wells on uh, into a two dollar market. So it'll fix itself. Uh, but anyway, LNG exports is where we get uh, more access to the global market. So if you, we do also ship a bunch of gas to Mexico, so that's the red part of the graph there on the right. And uh, by right now, we're at 18.5 BCF a day. That's about I'm pushing 20% of our total gas supply is already being exported, and it's going to go up significantly uh, over the next three or four years. There's a lot more LNG export facilities coming online in the next three years. So uh, uh, as we get more uh, access to the global market, global gas prices will impact the U.S. natural gas price. And today, uh, the gas price in Europe and Asia is like $15. So yeah. you can see how that gives and us I'll just say this. I, I said last year, you know, our, our internal prediction, which is just one company, right? But our internal prediction is that you would see gas prices really start to move up three to four years from now, from last mm -hmm. year, because right. that's when you get to 30% LNG export, right? Or not just right. LNG, but just exporting of, and, and when okay, you're at 30 to 40% of your supply going out, it gets a more global pricing. It won't have yeah. true, you're not going to get $15 in MCF or when it went to $70 an episode, you're not going to see exactly, you know, parapasu, but you will see an increase in the underlying price to be more reflective of what you're seeing globally. Uh, I thought Russia, Ukraine could have moved that forward a couple of years uh, as LNG increased, and it might actually move it forward a couple of years. The long-term trend I still think is there. You're going to 350, you're going to 450, you're going to 550, and you're probably somewhere around seven, five years out, trading all the way down to two, all the way up to 14, because it the stupid storage, but I do think you have a lot of pressure upwards for mm -hmm. natural gas over the next 10 years. Yeah. Okay. You want to take some questions now or, or, or anyway, go to this. Yeah, no, I, I think we should open up, Mike. If you have a couple of questions, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk around it and, and, and a couple of points because we don't have a whole lot of time. Uh, we were going to talk know, Matt, there's a not a lot of questions you haven't answered on your own. So keep on going through the next few slides and if any more pop up, I'll interrupt you. Okay. okay, so guys, real quick, I, I mentioned this before. Interesting thing part is the words of the banks globally, they have invested a lot less in oil and gas, traditional fossil fuels, but it's still as much or more than they are in the renewables, even with all the government guarantees, even with the force movement by Engine One, even with you name it. The reality is they know, and when you talk to the bankers, the exponential returns they're getting in fossil fuels 
are exponentially larger than what they're getting, even with, with government guarantees on the backside. Uh, and, and ultimately, it's just a safer bet for them. Uh, even though they don't want to publicly say it, the reality is, and J.P. Morgan said it, and you started to see it, that it's going to be here for the next 50 to 100 years. They're going to invest in it, right? So outside of, of kind of the, the woke push, uh, there's still a lot of money behind it. Not enough to replace our needs, but still, a, a lot, a, even those that are pledging net, net, net zero are, are disproportionately large in, in traditional fossil fuels right now. Um, and, and again, we've talked a little about this, but the statistics behind the reality of the global energy transition, they're just not there, right? When, when you're talking three to 4% uh, of supply coming from what we are considering or the world thinks is renewable, wind and solar, it's just not enough, right? You need massive increases in nuclear and hydro. Hydro is kind of limited. Nuclear can make an impact on electricity. Uh, it's just not feasible to get to a realistic, uh, the percentages might go down. You might get down to 80% hydrocarbons or 75. But when you're talking about 8 billion and then 10 billion people, it's still gonna be a higher gross number. We're gonna be talking about consuming 110 million barrels uh, of oil or replacing it with natural gas uh, all the way 50 years from now. It's just, it's not feasible any other way. And, and I'll put it in other terms for you guys so you, the world kind of gets it. When you think about the cost, the mining, the energy output it takes to make renewables, there's not enough of global reserves of graphite, copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium, on and on and on. We don't have enough to make a tr energy transition actually work, and the world knows it. And by the way, who's bought it all up is China because they're trying to have a transference of wealth. They're burning coal and selling us high cost renewables and, and laughing at us all the way along the process, right? <laughs> yep. It's not fun. It's funny, but it's not funny. It's actually obscene that we're willingly giving our wealth to the worst country and, and, and not really caring about it, right? On, 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 and the path to hell is always paved with good intentions, right? So two thirds of the batteries are coming there and it's all being fueled by coal. It's insulting to us. And, and, and if anyone understands what it takes to make mines here in the US, good luck over the next 16 to 25 years getting a single permit to come into action. It's how long it takes to get a permitted mine to work. So even if the US government will allow you to, even if you could get a permit, you're 20 years of adding any kind of supply, right, of, of actual rare earth elements into the, into the mainstream. And look at those numbers, guys. It would take about 4,000% increase in mining 4,000% <laughs> increase in mining. I know. It's pathetic. It's astronomical. It's not, and we don't have the materials. You could mine for it. You still can't build the batteries. But the numbers are just insane, right? Yeah. And, and then the efficiency is just is bad. People don't realize this. You have to mine 500,000 pounds of material to get one car battery. I know. It's now, insane. what's the it's energy insane. output? of that one car battery, right? So I'm gonna put it in a truck terms for you. If I get an EV truck versus a actual traditional ICE engine truck, when I get that EV truck delivered to me, it's 40 tons of carbon put out in the atmosphere. My truck won't consume that diesel over its entire lifespan. You've already put more carbon out. You've already consumed more energy. And then every single month, the electricity that I'm getting puts out just as much carbon especially with the transference of energy and loss 
as I'm actually using in my ice engine. The real reality should we should make ice better, continue working on making mm -hmm. it more efficient like we've done in the last 30 years. And yes, we should still do renewables. They're great because they handle localized energy needs and they you can make smart grid. It's all good. It's just not a replacement. And anyone who thinks it is or is misleading people that's a replacement is just lying to the world. That's true. Yep. Uh, and guess what? To, to run those mines, the equipment that works in those big mines, guess what it runs on? Diesel. Diesel. <laughs> I know. Diesel. I mean, right? yeah, hydrocarbon fuels. <laughs> the, the reality is people want to live better lives. And the one thing that's made the world better over the last 150 years is cheap and abundant energy. It is the life source of our life expectancy of all of the goods and services that we have. Everything is because of energy. We cannot go back in the dark ages and we're not going to. No one wants to. Right. So all the talk is just nonsense. Wipe it out. It might sound good. You might feel good to you. And there are good things about it. But at the end of the day, it's just not a replacement. It's just a falsehood that somehow people are, are, are just wanting to believe in and then thus they make it true. Right. And anytime there's money involved, everyone jumps on the bandwagon, labels themselves ESG, raises billions until it hurts them. Right. And, and, and Scott Sheffield says it best. Well, then people could realize that we cannot, in the next 50 years, build a plan to get out of hydrocarbons. It's just a fact. Period. End of sentence. So that's my soapbox. I'll get off of it now. 